when Christians read the Bible, when kind of laymen, you know, when average folks read the Bible, they start at the first New Testament book, which is the Matthew birth yep. narrative, yep. and they read A to Z Matthew, and then Mark, which in histori historically marks first, mm -hmm. actually marks the earliest gospel. They put Matthew at the front because of that nativity scene. So Matthew, front to, front to back, Mark, Luke, and then John, front to back. When you read it like that, it all sounds kind of similar. You know, it's very much... Um, Jesus goes around and preaches and heals some people. And, you know, he's killed to and comes back audiences. to different audiences. It's really not that different. But so what Bible scholars have really been doing over the last about 150 years, 200 years, um, is they started taking what's called um, vertical reading. So that first style is called horizontal reading. And um, they'll vertical read the same event in Yep. multiple gospels. So you're reading it across so, all so you're four. reading it across and you're Where saying, you well, yeah, or, well, very little yeah, are in all John, four. Yeah, yeah. John's its own whole thing, yeah. which we'll discuss. But yeah, um, you can see kind of what's called the evolution of the Jesus character or de-evolution, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, 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 the changes of the Jesus character. When I say Jesus character, I don't mean he's not real. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, you we can see the, the deification you see the deification yeah, yeah. in John. And there, I think there are beautiful, and I'd love to hear your take on that. We're getting unpacking this, but I think there are beautiful takes yeah. on that. Like John was the closest to Jesus, right? In the, according to the, the Bible, right? Well, according to his version. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair. But you see this even in, um, in the other Gospels. Like he was the... Um, the one that laid on Jesus's bosom at the the, 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 the supper. Yeah. The supper. So the the, the the one who I loved. A lot of people believe John may still be alive because of a, a crazy verse. Like, what is it to you if he lives until I return? If you remember that. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't remember that. What what, what I could um, kind of share as like a foundation is that like for example in Mark. He's very misunderstood. Yeah. People don't really get him. He he has a failed miracle in Mark, which is not in the later Gospels. He gets run out of Nazareth. You know, he's kind of this crazy desert wizard yeah. in Mark, you know. And, um, and then the Matthean Jesus, the Jesus in Matthew, he's very Jewish. He's obsessed with yeah. kind of the law and the prophets and the rituals. And then which in makes Luke, sense because it ultimately accepted that Matthew's audience was Jews. Matthew was written in Galilee. Yeah. We know that uh, from the scholarship and the archaeology. Whereas the Lucan Jesus, uh, the Gentiles. Luke Acts is all about the Gentiles. It's all yeah. about the poor and money and things like that. And then by the time you get to John, uh, which is 100, 100 mm -hmm. CE, yeah, you could do the dates. So yeah. 30, 35, Jesus is killed. Mark is 70 to 75. Matthew's, Matthew's right, behind that. right behind that. 70 yeah. to 80. Luke is, I think, 80 to 95. Yeah. And then John it's is sometime... at the earliest 100. Right. Yeah. Maybe as late as 125, and and even Clement the first, who is a very respected church father of the Orthodox, the Apostolic tradition, is the first one to call John the spiritual gospel of yep. John, which is a nice little kind of. It's like you know, it's good. It doesn't mean throw it out, yeah, because it's very beautiful and it's poetic and has all these symbolic uh, truths. But at the same time, it's much less historical and more. You see. God, Christ represented as God, right? Is the Correct. deification in John. And the synoptics, the first three, and I'd love to hear your take on this, 
to me, the revelation is how did how did the book of Thomas not make it into right. the, the wow. canon of scripture? Because literally, it's like it looks like they're polling. We know Thomas was written first, right? We don't know that, well, but that's, that's my uh, yeah. There, there's no academic yeah, consensus. Right. I guess you're right, but but, but there the are language, scholars that say it's the earliest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then, and you can see a lot poll from Thomas into the other three. So it's like, and Marcian, um, I think you talked about this, but certainly yeah. we know that was one of the early Gnostics that really put the canon of scripture together. The first canon the is Marcian. Yeah. yeah, who's a Gnostic, which obviously yeah. we know going back to the, the exoteric, they're not a big fan of the Gnostics. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was, all, there was all of these different groups, you know, and there was all these different communities writing even within that first century. You know, right. it was extremely human, it was extremely political, even that early, as early as the writing of the Gospels. And, you know, let's definitely come back to Thomas. Yeah, um, but, but get 14.6. So we're, John 14.6. <laughs> so what's funny about John 14.6 is I get John 14.6 commented every day yep. on my material. <laughs> on Instagram or TikTok, I get it. it makes sense. Four days a week. Yep. You know, some days seven or eight days a week, um, and the verses, as every you know Christ Christian, Christian that's not <laughs> thrilled with the work I'm doing, <laughs> likes to share. Uh, Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." So, we we just explained how that's in John. Yeah. And so we just explained how we know that the Gospels are written in different decades, and John is much later. Decades, and, we're talking century in this case. Well, right? John or is almost, about yeah, almost 100 years, years after his death. Which is like when people start to realize this, yeah. like we're talking about a book that was written 100 years after Christ's death. Died, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, I have so much I want to say. I know it's early, too, but, yeah. but, you know, yeah. In retro, yeah, early relative to now, but... Compared to, yeah, I mean, even Mark and Matthew. It would be like writing about World War One today. That's true. Right? Yeah. That yeah. would be yeah. like, oh, I'm going to write about what happened in World War One today. Yeah. Right. The Roaring Twenties. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great point. Or right after World um, War One, I guess. But. Whereas, like, Mark and Matthew were, like, in the 70s. Right. You know, <laughs> writing about World War One. you know, it's Hemingway's... Uh, <laughs> you know, farewell to arms or whatever. Anyway, um, so John 14 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we already know that's, that's in John. The other component of this, which I talk about in the book, is the audience that Jesus is talking to is a huge component of the meeting. 100%. Right? And, th and this is something that, and granted, I don't, I'm not a big, I don't go to, haven't gone to church a lot recently, and I kind of got in trouble for saying churches don't talk about this. It was a little like, marketing you of me to say something like that churches don't like to talk about this and some Christians are like no we do talk about this so maybe you guys do um the Bereans do but yeah there are the bible class on Wednesday night does <laughs> um so you know Jesus he speaks to either very large crowds sermon on the mount um he speaks to kind of smaller groups or kind of smaller you know a stranger will kind of ask him a question in like a group and as kind of the second environment, and then, and then just to the close disciples. There's like kind of the third scene, right? Yep. And the first group, the large, you know, um, the large groups in, in the crowds, that's like, pray to your Father in heaven, um, blessed are the poor, you know, the very direct, simplistic stuff that's really good. And, um, and he's admonishing over and over again, spoken parable, let those who have ears to hear, hear, because he wanted to speak deeper truths. But right. not because they couldn't get it. Right. Yeah. I think I make the argument that 
kind of that secondary group, if you will, of kind of a smaller group that doesn't necessarily know him. They're the ones that get the parables. Especially when he was being challenged. Right. He would respond in parable because... Because if you said they, the literal thing, they could freak, They'd freak out. They yeah. couldn't consciously get what he was saying. Paul said a similar thing in, in Corinthians. Was like, I'd like to give you meat, but I'd have to keep giving you milk because you're not, you're not able to get it. Like True. You still don't understand. True. Yeah, and the Good Samaritan parable is a great example, which is extremely radical to make the Samaritan the hero of the story who was a despised ethnic outcast yep. who was just at war with the Jews. So he was doing all of that. He was very radical uh, in teaching. And we wouldn't know that unless you studied Scripture and you understand history, what's like the relevance of what he is saying when he says it. We just think, oh, it's just a poor stranger. Well, now the we road. think Good Samaritan, oh, a hospital. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, it's exactly. like totally lost that. So yeah. to that point. But so that's the kind of the first and second group. But then the third group is the disciples. The disciples get the heavy, symbolic, spiritual language. You know, they get the true identity, yeah. right? Unlike crowds less and people who don't less know filtered. him. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're living with him. You know, when you're living with a spiritual teacher, a master, and you know that, that you're getting these truths, that's, that's a different interpretation than the larger crowds and larger audiences. And they so, still struggled. And they still struggled, Massively. and they still cowered at the transfiguration and everything. And so, um, I'm the way, the truth, and life. That is in John, which is the latest gospel, the last gospel. Yep. And it's to the close disciples only, who get the true identity, who are ready for ideas like, I am the way, it doesn't mean this body. Correct. Right? And in that same passage... Um, right before that is when he says, before Abraham was, I am, I am. Oh. right? So, so I, I'm, I am calling on the timelessness. You know, this is the Christ conscious. That the yes, new age. in context, we're not talking about a body. We're we're not, how, how could this man, this body, this, you know, single person come before the founder of Judaism, right, you know, right. 1500 years earlier? So that's where John 10, 14, 6 happens. And, you know, the interpretation kind of by Yogananda and, and, and other mystics kind of like me is that he's saying, I am the way, unconditional love. You know, unconditional love is the way. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to Creator except through unconditional love, love. Which was his Which teaching. is true. That's 100% his teaching. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So that's, you know, that's the deeper read on 14.6. And... Um, you know, it's tough to get that across in an Instagram comment reply. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, made a couple of videos about it, but I think it, you know, it does better in the book and in a podcast. And, you know, people who are, who are open to these ideas and things like that get it, you know, and, and, and the rigidity of kind of the Christian exclusivity stuff, they're just, they're not, they're not open to those reads on it. So. Which is the, the exoteric, as you were calling it, religious structures are all about exclusivity because it's it really becomes about power right right and you see that like and as i was studying church history from the time christ was was crucified to now i'm like does anybody read this stuff like this is clearly a human <laughs> land grab this is a power grab yeah right that and, and it doesn't mean that and, and what i would the language i would use doesn't mean that god isn't working through that but i look at religion like scaffolding which is hmm, maybe yeah. just a a more rough way of saying it than some of the avatars you were explaining, but it's like, 
it's it kind of props up the statue or the building while it's being built. But mm. once you have the building, you don't need the scaffolding, right? Right. right. It's like, it's great. There's an old there's an old quote that I've always enjoyed that said, uh, "Who can understand scripture except for the enlightened, and the enlightened don't need scripture." Mm. And it's like there's a lot yeah. of deep truth in that. It's like, and it's and for me, what I listen for is not whether somebody knows what I would describe as the book of the Lord, if I'm talking to a Christian, but do they know the Lord of the book? Hmm. And if you know the Lord of the book, then the book is, I don't want to say meaningless, but it changes how you see it. Right? Yeah. And I explain it like, if my best friend or your best friend was Michael Jordan, right? and you knew him, you hung out with him all the time, you golfed with him, you smoked cigars with him, and you knew how freaking competitive he was, and he's this crazy dude. And I go, hey, dude, you know Michael Jordan? That's crazy. Do you know that he's 6'6"? You know he won six championships with the Bulls? <laughs> and I'm like giving you all these stats and I'm yeah. explaining all these things about him. And you're like, you think it's kind of strange that I'm sharing these things? Because you actually know, know the, the guy. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you're like, well, yeah, I, mean, it's, I guess that's kind of cool. Like, that's you funny. have such a totally different orientation in Right. For me, that's obvious when somebody knows God yeah. because their orientation to what they talk about totally changes. Yeah. And a lot of the Christianese is talking about the book of the Lord, not the Lord of the book, which is one of the reasons I love the Bible is that it does meet you at your level of consciousness. You can pull out mm. of it whatever you want. You want to see a violent God? It's in there. Right. Right? Like, especially the Old Testament. In fact, there's, uh, I think you brought this up too, but there's, there's some theories. It's like, it's like a, an in-between God. It isn't even the real yeah. God in the Old Testament because it's so fiercely. That's a Marcion Belief, Actually, yeah, yeah, peace. belief system yeah. that yeah. Uh, what did he call him? Um, Yaldabaoth, Yaldabaoth, something like that. Yeah, the false creator god. False creator. Yeah. Demiurge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Demiurge is a good yeah. thing. Yeah. Or it's like when you study the Old Testament, it's almost like you're talking, you're talking about a completely different god, right? I don't. What I see and kind of how I hold that is, um, if you're God and you're trying to connect with the human experience. You have to meet them at their level of consciousness. They hmm. don't have a way. You have to meet them where they're at. You can't yeah. ask them to meet you where you're at because they don't have. They don't even have a, an ability to do that. So you show up in a way that they're going to understand. So when I look at the Bible, what yeah. I see is a a beautiful love story of God's passionate pursuit of connection with hmm. human. Yeah, that's beautiful. Right, and meeting. And what I see is consciousness as it rises. How he shows up. How she shows up. You know, whatever you want there. Yeah. changes right and, and for me the humility in, and I'd love your take on this I think Christianity is going through a reckoning right now as a lot of people are like isn't it ever yeah yeah it's like hey this isn't this isn't really adding up and part of that is and I love you know your, your thoughts on, on Timothy and I don't think I disagree with you on the Pauline epistles but this, this form of godliness but denying its power hmm Right, and I think that's where Christianity in the West is. Yeah, it's like this form of godliness, but denying its power. It's like the fruit isn't there. So all it really is then is, is like the Sadducees and the Pharisees of old, right? Like whitewashed tombs. It's like there's there isn't the yeah. cycles. Yeah, hundred percent. It's <laughs> like in a loop. and there's and hundred percent. There's to me there's, there's I would think there'd be humility in that, right? When when Christ shows up on the scene, they crucify him because they can't see the very being that had been prophesied in the Old Testament, right? If you believe that, I think there's good reason to believe it, shows up on the scene and they can't even see him. Yeah. Because they're so obsessed with their words, they can't see the truth in front of them. And I've always looked at, and I'm sure you, 
you've studied the the rhema word versus the logos word, which rhema word is like the living. Word. I heard you in that podcast saying that. Uh, <laughs> to me, that's it. it the, yeah. the living word of God is always being present. It's right. always and it's showing up at the level of consciousness. Where we get stuck is when we want to keep going back to the written word or the logos yeah. word, word of God instead of living in the rhema word of God. And the promise in the New Testament is. Says, call unto me and I will answer you, right? And the Holy Spirit in Second John, like, man, that, that's my advocation to any Christian. It's like something bugs you, or something that's just like, no way, this can't be true. Just ask the Holy Spirit. If you go ask with a with a pure heart, like, like, hey, I just want to know. There's some answers that took me 10 years to get, but they eventually were unfolded for me. Hmm. Uh, and to me, that's the where I think Christianity is stuck. But I feel a heart, and I, I wanted to bring you on because there are a lot of really great people. In the Christian faith, and I think there, are, you know, you don't to, to. I think you and Aubrey talked about this, and I agree. You don't last two thousand years if there aren't some real gems in there. Right. right. You've seen the impact on Western civilization, but it's like I think it's time to upgrade, right? Our, our, our not the Bible, but our way we're looking at it. Yeah. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, <clears throat> and I've said a lot here. I apologize, but no, no, no. How do you, how do you reconcile this? idea of within the Christian faith the general belief is it is the inalienable word of God yeah right which is actually it, it some of that comes from the book of Revelation which scores very low in consciousness anyway but is in the final final book of the, the New Testament yeah but I don't I, pay much mind to it I wouldn't yeah, yeah, after, yeah. especially after chapter Sorry, four it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah <laughs> but but how do you address that with a Christian that's like that their whole belief system is no it's perfect well, yeah, no, that's that's a great point, and and there's a lot that you said there that I yeah anyway jump to wherever you whatever come back to um, now I, I think the crumbling of the infallibility doctrine thing is really has to happen. What is happening? It is happening. If you and I have fun with people who are like that say that I'm like, well, then why do we have women pe- preaching now? Why are women not growing out their hair anymore? Yeah, why are women not saved by child? If we really this is and like, that's well, that's the historical. Jesus, you know, the quest for the historical Jesus, the Bible scholarship that's taken place in the last 150 years, that's probably the best thing that it's done, is to say that if anyone is saying that the Bible is infallible, which a few million, tens of millions of people <laughs> are, yep. um, you know, they're just, they just haven't looked at the text. You know, yep. it, it, as soon as you get really they're not saying familiar that with the text, yeah, you can see the discrepancies, you can see the contradictions across the, you know, gospel accounts. That's really my expertise. Um, you know, I talk about, you mentioned the Pauline epistles, um, the pastoral epistles. I'm still, um, it, on Aubrey, I said the Pauline epistles. But anyway, I meant the, the pastoral epistles are the ones that are um, very... Like the academic consensus is Which, that in they're that disputed. Case you're First and Second Timothy and, and Titus. Oh, Titus. Yeah, the TIs. Yeah, and you know, um, religious. There's religious scholars that can that I can point you to. Uh, From Jesus to Christianity by um, Professor Ellen White, who was one of my mentors, um, covers it in great detail. I cite his research and basically, um, you know, for for example. Paul's letters that are valid, Timothy is a character. He, he, he was a courier of Paul. He was someone who would go on the highway and take Paul's letters and give them to the Roman community and give them to the people in Corinth. That's what Corinthians is, right? Um, those are really written by Saul turned Paul of Tarsus. 
decades later, um, maybe longer, um, when the church continues to kind of progress and become more of this institution, um, there's, you know, essentially the idea is that the, the letters of Timothy, First and Second Timothy and Titus, they are written to Timothy, right? He's the recipient. He's this, you know, it's Paul telling Timothy, Timothy uh, giving him instructions. And in the authentic letters of Paul, Timothy is very, he's a beloved kind of son almost yep. to Paul. Um, and in the letters to him, he's admonishing him for his uh, irresponsibility. And uh, he's really railing on him, basically, yep. in, t in the TIs. And um, kind of secondarily to the personality relationship not matching up, there's also words in uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus that are used like deacon, for example, which is uh, a title in a church that didn't exist in Paul's day. You know, not it was much more rudimentary. I mean, in Paul's day, they were like house churches, correct? Just people yeah. gathering, you know, in a very informal way. And so, to kind of have these roles and things like that are just um, it's anachronistic, right? Yep. Is the word. Uh, of the language so so yeah and and yet those are in every Bible you know in every hotel's drawer you have these letters that say this is from Paul and we know that they weren't written by Paul you know there, there is a, a number of books that Paul gets mostly credit for that are still in question they're just not certain yeah who there's, to give there's kind of the like a red to. yellow green correct Hebrew is a, Hebrews is another one right that like I think I don't think, it depends on what translation you get, they, there's generally a, an idea that perhaps Paul wrote it, but we're not sure. Right? Yeah. But there's a number of these books. But this disputed. Is like, yeah, disputed. Yeah. And this is what's funny to me, is if you start studying church history, yeah. you're like, how can you on one hand go, this is the undisputed, inalienable word of God that is completely accurate and has no, fa no fallacies in it, right, or no inaccuracies in it, yeah. and yet it was canonized 300 years later, Right, in an effort for Rome to unify Rome under a, a Christian religion. Yeah. Right? That alone is fascinating to me. Right. And so you're just trusting the, the dudes state. that all sat together and decided what books made it and what yeah. books didn't yeah. were also a tyrannical dictatorship. Right. You know? um, yeah. And, um, you know, the other thing about what's crazy about the, the first and second Timothy letters is that, um, well, what's actually in them? You know, if Paul didn't write them and these later guys said, hey, I'm Paul, I'm going to say this. Those are the lines where it says women should not speak in church. Correct. Those are the lines. There's, a, there's even a line in there. Childbearing, which is where the Mormons get the big family it, it idea. Really messed up stuff is in yeah. the pastorals. And, and it, the rapture. It, it, it was the very, um, it was refreshing for me to learn that those are inauthentic. They're yeah. forgeries, yeah. basically, is what they are, uh, pseudepigrapha. And um, there's even a line that says, basically, slaves should be really good to their masters if the master believes in Jesus. I mean, it's really messed but up, the, this is, And I don't like to do this to yeah. Christians, because it, it, like... The other thing is you don't... I've also learned to be uh, careful or responsible with how you challenge somebody's worldview. Well, you're right. Because if it doesn't get replaced with something else, 
Yeah. At least in the short term, it appears that it can do more harm than good. I'm happy to because die on the hill that the pastoral epistles can the, need to be torn 100%, out of the book. 100%, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, um, you know, what you said uh, earlier about it's kind of not throwing out the baby with the bat. That, well, that's the problem because as soon yeah. as you start, yeah. for some, if you start challenging the idea that the Bible is not... It's it's a it's a man made Bible, yeah. right? Which is not in no way saying that God is not perfect. It's that the human representation of that experience is not perfect. Yeah. But for for many in the Christian faith who were, for lack of a better way to put it, is brainwashed into believing something. As soon as that breaks, it's challenged and all. It's very then scary. Every, then it like yeah. everything unravels. Because then it's scary. like what is truth? And the yeah. reason it unravels is because most. I shouldn't say that because maybe I don't know that. I would question how many people have an actual relationship with God that can navigate them through that experience, yeah. right? And get well untethered said. so that they can come back to the truth. And it's if the truth is in the Bible, yeah. that book, then as soon as the book gets dissolved, then they don't know what to believe. It's like, well, what do I believe yeah. at all anymore? So I try to be careful with that. But if, if somebody wants to go, oh, it's, it's perfect and alienable, then I'll just start going, right, so slaves are supposed to, to be good yeah. slaves to their masters? So yeah. I'm like, wow. I'm like they're done. There's like three or four verses and they're done. They're like, I don't have an answer for that. The, like, well, yeah, there's, it's, a, there's a reason. <laughs> there's a really good image that um, is from Brother David Steindl Rast. That's not That's in my a book. Fun last name. It's not Steindl. in my book. He's a German, I think he's a Benedictine monk. And I'm, I was so mad that I read it a year after my book was published. I was like, God, this would have been great. Anyway. Um, you can update and revise. He said, yeah, the 2.0 uh, original <laughs> sin is a lie. Um, he said... He said, all religions start from mysticism. Mm. He, the, I'm paraphrasing. He says, the image is, it's like, it's like a volcano. When the, these religions are formed, let's say all of them, all the major world religions, it's like the power of a volcano, the image of the lava that explodes this you know, life force, this vitality, you know, your Jesus, your Buddha, you know, Muhammad, etc. The, the, the men and women throughout history who have been extremely connected to spirit it explodes and um, what happens is the lava runs down the mountain and over the years and decades and centuries and millennia it becomes Hardly. dead rock yeah right yeah. and that is a pretty darn good analogy for um, you know what happens with these religious traditions because I do firmly believe that you know, I call him the avatar of Galilee. You know, I really think that Jesus was attained the heights of 100%. what a human being can do. 100%. I'm with you. And um, yeah, and I'm, and I'm very, you know, in some, in some ways I've kind of become this Jesus defender. Right. You know, not in the <laughs> traditional way of what that term means, right? But I really, I'm a huge fan of him. I've devoted a significant amount of my life and years to understanding his teachings. And so, in, you know, while some of my work is saying, you know, hey, Christians, the Bible's not perfect and these other paths have value, I'm also saying to kind of the secular crowd, to your point earlier, like, hey, guys, you know, there's a reason that these religions are still around. There's a real value in scripture and spiritual paths because they have the capacity to be transformational. 100%. And you see that to your point. We kind of got off, but you were, you're bringing up somebody who came into Christianity later in their life and yeah. found great benefit in that. Right. I agree. 
especially if it's like, oh, we got some principles here, some values to live by, a structure to make sense of our life. Yeah. I think those are all really beautiful things. But for me, the question is, does it bring you closer to the holy instance? Does it bring mm. you closer to God? Right. right? If, it's, if you're getting stuck in a behavior or getting stuck in a, a ritualistic process without real connection, then I don't think it's, it's serving its highest purpose. And I, I, on more than one instance, uh, how do I explain this? I've heard multiple times from, um, we'll say people who are no longer on earth, that there was a, at one point, there was a huge discussion, we'll say, around whether or not to canonize the Bible at all or mm. to allow the Bible to become a book. Because mm. the concern was exactly what you were saying, the volcano that, that blows up and then over time turns into dead rock. It's like they knew there was a really good chance it would end up being weaponized yeah. and being used in ways that it was never intended. Because yeah, right, the further well, you get away from the source, I would argue it has. hundred percent, hundred percent. You can see that, but it's yeah. like there was great debate over: do, do yeah. we allow this to happen? Because if this happens, this is the the thing. So you see, kind of. Yeah. I'd love to hear your take on this. It's interesting to me. Uh, well, let's go back because you, you you were trying to make a point. I'm I'm jumping around here, but I'm tracking with you. You're trying to make a point about vertical interpretation and the synoptics, the three. Right? When you start looking at those stories as one story from different views, you start yeah. to see. Now, one could argue, and I think theologians would, being in these circles enough, would say, well, you're getting different people's perspective, right? Because you have three people sit and witness the, the same witnesses. event. Yeah, yeah. And you're going to see yeah. it differently because right. your perspective is slightly different, which overall I can buy into from a human experience, not so much from a perfect, inalienable God experience. Yeah. But that's generally the contention. But you had a point you were trying to make about the vertical interpretation over the last 150 years. Oh, well, I mean, I would say, I think the, the, the main, you know, advantage to civilization that Bible scholarship has presented is, is the humanness of it all. Um, you know, one of, one of my, well, I have a list of like discrepancies. I'll point people to Professor Bart Ehrman, UNC Chapel Hill, who's a very um, prolific Bible scholar. Bart Ehrman kind of does what no scholars do, which is writes popular books uh, <laughs> very well. Um, so he's kind of, you know, he sells a lot of books and he's a very, very uh, legitimate um, Bible scholar and uh, knows Greek and all that. Um, so check, check out his work. He, misquoting Jesus is one of his really good ones about um, the human formation of the Bibles and like the discrepancies. Um, but you know, one, one there, there's different people at the tomb, let's say, for example. Yep. Um, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is in one by herself. Uh, it's the women in another one. It's the disciples in another. There's angels at the tomb in one. There's just a soldier in one. There's no one guarding in another one. I mean, there's different um, yep. kind of like it's all different almost like dimensions in terms of the existences of those stories. Um, a really great one too is the, the flipping of the money changers temple in Mark. It's the last Correct. moment that gets him arrested yep. because they, the, the Jewish, the Sanhedrin says, Hey, this is the troublemaker flipping tables in our temple. Like let's get the Romans here. And in John, it's at the beginning, right at the beginning. of his ministry. Yep. He goes and preaches for you know multiple years after that. And and I even had a guy on TikTok actually that responded to one of those <laughs> videos and said, um, 
it's in there in both of those events in those gospels because it happened twice it happened at the beginning and then he flipped the money changers tables again and bart ehrman actually mentions that phenomenon in christian apologetics he says that would be uh, what's called a super gospel <laughs> uh, if it happens both times um, that would be you're making like a fifth gospel of all of it together which neither of those suggest so you know I, I'm meaning when you blend the four stories you create a whole new gospel and timeline by putting them all together right yeah. which is yeah. not what any of them wrote or, or indicate yeah. right or indicate whatsoever so yeah. I, I don't buy that I think that it was extremely, you know, like we said earlier, it was very human. They, they were writing for specific communities. Um, I talk about the condemnation of the Pharisees. I'd be happy to talk about that one with you briefly. Yeah, um, you know, the Pharisees, uh, for anyone who's not familiar, was kind of the rabbinical uh, precursor in, in the Jewish sect. Um, they are, they're, in Jesus' time, they're kind of like running for mayor kind of energy. Um, they're very like concerned with their appearance and surface level stuff. And um, in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, Jesus kind of calls them out. And he says, for example, in one of kind of the authentic teachings, he says, when you're fasting, wear bright, colorful clothing, <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's, it's between you and God, right. you know. He's it, being satirical. D d d well, he's saying, d don't be like the Pharisees who wear tattered clothing, you know, in order to kind of gain sympathy for their spiritual, uh, yep. you know, prowess, uh, you know, don't, don't do that. Just, you know, ha have a, it's between you and God, basically. It's not for to draw sympathy from the crowds, which is a great teaching and like super relevant today on like Instagram and, you know, whatever. Anyway, surface level perception. Giving, serving. Yeah, uh, it's not worry. It's not how being perceived as this righteous person. Um, and so, when you take the section of the New Testament when Jesus is calling out the Pharisees, the condemnation of the Pharisees, you look at the Markan version, the Matthean version, and the Lucan version. Again, um, in Mark, it's very short. I mean, it's it's a couple paragraphs, if that. Luke's version, a little bit longer. Not much. Matthew's version is like two pages. I mean, it just goes on and on and on about the Pharisees. He even, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus even calls them, you den of vipers. Yep, Which is tombs. a really mean thing to say <laughs> um, for someone who also said, love your enemies, forgave his killers, yep. um, lived in this incredible, unconditional love. And so you know, kind of like we were talking earlier, we know that the Matthean gospel is written in Galilee versus the Lucan gospel is written outside the Jewish homeland. So what happens in 70 CE is the Jewish people revolt against the Roman Empire. Titus shows up. And the Romans come into Jerusalem and it is absolutely Gnar brutal. Gnarly. And it is um, a a massacre, the blood runs through the streets, it's this extreme crisis and tragedy, and, and the temple's burned yep. and sacked. And so... Every stone removed. And so that is the environment culturally in which the gospel were written. Um, and so what happened was the Sadducees, who you referenced earlier, who were the Jewish priests of the temple, they're gone now. 
Yep. And now you really just have two primary. The Essenes are off in the desert. They're not long. They don't have much time left either. Um, it's the Pharisees and the Jesus-following Jews. And so Matthew's gospel is writing to Jesus-following Jews and to kind of the rest of the Jewish population to quite clearly antagonize the other. He uses his main character to antagonize his political foe in order to gain followers. Um, you know, it, it's very clear that extended condemnation is not in the Markan or Lucan Gospels where that political climate doesn't exist. That sectarian division between the Pharisees and the Jesus-following Jews is what's created even in the Gospels themselves, you know, let alone like all the centuries later in the Nicaea, everyone talks about, you know, the Middle Ages and stuff like the King James Version. Look at when they wrote Matthew. They were already putting political... Uh, components in here. So it's super interesting to hear yeah. you say that. I'd love to hear your take. Yeah. The Mount of Olives, um, Jesus is sitting with his disciples and they are like, one, they're confused because they originally thought he was coming to overthrow the Roman Empire. Yeah. And he's like, yo, this kingdom isn't mine. I'm not, I'm not here to yeah. do anything. I have another Romans. one. And that, like, yeah, that yeah. threw them off. <laughs> yeah. And then he he kind of double entendre the, the statement when, when he was talking about his own body and then he was talking about the temple being destroyed, right? Yeah. It's like, no, not one stone will stand on the other. Like, it's all going to be pulled apart. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, when is this going to happen? Yeah. And he says, he, he gives them a whole prophecy, which is in the world of eschatology. I don't know how much you studied eschatology, but the world of eschatology in the, the Christian church, that's a fundamental belief system to this in time prophecy that some yeah. somewhere in the future this diabolical event's going to take place. Yeah. But that did happen. Right? What he prophesied, right? It, it, as we would say did happen and unless you're saying well we were actually talking about it after the fact, but in Matthew he literally prophesied that temple was going to be destroyed and it really was it was Rome sacking Israel that one hindered Jew, the Jewish religion from continuing to grow and at the simultaneous time allowed Christianity to grow because they knew to get the hell out of town. He's like, hey, if you see these things happening, mm, yeah. grab your tunic and run. Like, or don't even grab your tunic, run because Rome is coming to sack Israel. Right? And that's the, yeah, and I, that's the portrayal. And I've always thought that was a fairly, whether, if I'm hearing you right, you're kind of saying, well, this was written as a historical account. It was probably written after these events happened. And that could very well be, and I could hear what you're saying there. I've always looked at it like he's giving them warning to mm. get out of Israel because these things were going to happen. And they were, they were totally confused and frustrated by his statement. Like, like what do you mean this is going to happen? And that's exactly what happened. And if you look at it historically, and I think you, you see this, when Rome sacked Israel... Christianity spread like wildfire because they got out. Whereas mm. Ju Judaism, which was highly suppressing Christianity right at the time, it was the biggest persecutor of Christianity, got demolished. It was suppressed massively by the Romans and then Christianity just <clears throat> went in all directions. Yeah. Which was the fulfillment of, of um, Paul's work, right? That was like right. what Paul talked about. Yeah, I, I really, I mean, the Bible scholars tend to point more towards the fact that those temple references are the gospel writers themselves. I personally, kind of from the mystics view, 
interpret a lot of Jesus' teachings from this kind of mystic, non-dual lens. Um, And kind of the prophesying stuff isn't really what I'm interested in or able to really account for. I mean, even, for example, he curses the fig tree in Mark. Which is confusing to people. No one gets that. And I've even seen like, I've seen like atheist marches or whatever, where it says like, God, ha- God hates figs, right. you know, which is a funny <laughs> thing. Um, but because of it, what he says in Mark about this tree shall never bear fruit, he's talking about the temple. Yeah. Guys, he's talking about institutional, old school. 100%. Kind of wooden religion, uh, uh, his religion um, as a Jewish teacher. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of... Um, it's, it's hard to know what the gospel writers added on, uh, of course. Um, you know, I think this might be a good segue into Thomas, yep. which um, was found in 1945. Um, we knew that Thomas existed. And so if anyone is not familiar with the gospel of Thomas, do yourself a favor. Google the Gospel of Thomas yeah, you can right now. You can... you can read it for free. Um, yep. It's it's about it's 117 sayings um, of Jesus, and um, yeah, we knew it existed because church fathers wrote about it, and they said, you know, this is one of the not real ones or suppressed this one. You know, we knew it was it was mentioning church uh, correspondence, uh, but we never had it. What happened was uh, an Egyptian shepherd in the 1940s was chasing a goat and ran under this boulder outside of Nag Hammadi and found, um, I believe it was 13 codices, which are leather-bound books. They're some of the earliest uh, leather-bound books that we have in civilization. They're not scrolls. Um, And it was about 50 different texts. Uh, Plato's Republic is in there, which is kind of a fun fact. and there's a couple of, it's, it's a Hellenistic collection, yeah. you know. Um, but the Gospel of Thomas is, is arguably the most significant find. It's one of the most kind of significant finds of the 20th century. And, um, you know, there's a lot of exciting things about Thomas. One is, well, it even starts off by saying these are the hidden sayings of Jesus as recorded by Didymus Thomas the twin, um, which is exciting as the opener. But uh, what's cool about it to me is really two things. One set, 117 sayings, there's no plot points, right? And so if you look at, um, if you have two texts based on an ancient teacher, and one of them is just a list of Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said, blah, blah, blah. It's just saying 30, saying 77. And then you have the Gospels, which are very sophisticated narratives, they have plot points, they have events, all this stuff. Um, you know, just textually, it's pretty clear uh, what came first. And then kind of on top of that, you have, I believe it's 70-something. It's two-thirds about, let's say. Two-thirds of the 117 sayings um, have parallels in Matthew and Luke. Not really in Mark and not really in John. A little bit in John. Um, and... In the Thomasine versions, they're simpler. In Matthew and Luke, there's a little more added to it. And, you know, that's kind of proof enough for me. Um, a lot of Christians um, 
are very uh, become very you know angry and frustrated with the with the uh, idea that Thomas is earlier than the Gospels. Um, but it's there's no scholarly consensus. Some scholars think it's 150, 200. Some say 100 around John. Some say Paul, uh, contemporary with Paul. You know, which is what I think. So in the the frame, what what makes you think? So that we can, for our listeners, what makes you think that it would have come earlier? Because it's simpler and it's yeah, not in it, story? It, it, there's no story. There's no plot points. It kind of has that energy of like being scribbled down. Like Jesus said this, Jesus said this, Jesus said this. There's no, you know, the even Mark, the simplest gospel, has a very complex story. Yeah. And, you know, symbolic moments and all this stuff. Thomas has none of that. It's just bullet points. What, so what about that makes structure. you think that would indicate that it came earlier, not later? Um, yeah, because what about that? Um, just the, the, the more simplistic, the more rudimentary style textually. Um, but then secondarily, like I said, for example, it has the mustard seed. It has the wedding uh, garment. It has tell me what I'm like. It has a lot, a lot of the greatest hits yep. are in Thomas. And... Um, <laughs> You know, the wedding garment is one that I make a comparison of at the end of the book. The Thomas version, kind of back to the vertical reading thing, the Thomas version, the Lucan version, and the Matthean version. And just read them. Go online and read the wedding garment in Thomas, in Luke, and Matthew. Or you can order Original Sin is a Lie and read it in my book because I put them in there. (laughs) <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, there's a lot more to the story in Luke and there's much more to the story in Matthew. It's much simpler in Thomas. And so it seems pretty clear, Sebastian, that the gospel writers are adding on more details to these original stories, uh, for their own, for their own means, for their own aim. You know? Have you read the, the book of Enoch? I'm not familiar, uh, enough with it. Yeah, the the Apocrypha is very, um, you could spend a lifetime studying it all. And I will say, you know, you you talked about canonization earlier. I'll even say, as as a mystic, kind of Gnostic-leaning, you know, whatever that uh, labelless spiritual fan of all this stuff, um, I get why they canonized the documents. There was they were writing hundreds, right. you know. This Jesus guy was so popular. There was yep. people were going, oh, and then this gospel stuff. And there's like real kind of church leaders going, oh boy, this is getting out of hand. You're getting all sorts of variations of a story. It's right. like, oh, we got to create it. We got to find which ones are the real deal. So I, I get that, and I honor that, you know. And again, Marcion's a Gnostic teacher was the first one to do that because it's necessary to kind of say these are legit and these ain't, but... You know, uh, they took it too far, and they, they, you know, we even we they found the Gospel of Mary Magdalene in Nagamati Library. Unfortunately, it's just about Fragments. two pages. Yeah, uh, yeah. I wish you know maybe one day we'll find the whole thing, but it is the two pages are out of control. What we found. Um, Give us some of the highlights. Well, what happens is Mary Magdalene comes back from talking to Jesus, and. Um, she starts to tell Peter and the disciples about what Jesus told her. And um, Peter gets upset because it is much more advanced (laughs) philosophy than he's been told. And the rest of the disciples have been told. She starts explaining 
um, which is something you touched on, I think, in that podcast uh, with Ryan about um, spirit and soul and the difference, kind of this cosmological mm-hmm. layers of the astral realms. It's very fascinating. You can also look up Gospel of Mary Magdalene online and it'll take you 25 minutes to read it. So check it out. Um, but um, what th- that's the first half is kind of Mary saying, well, the master said all this. And Peter, then the second half is Peter being frustrated that and kind of calls her a liar. And the disciples say, well, wait a second, Peter. We haven't been told anything like on that level. Why are you, you know? And so there's kind of this dispute. And it's almost like this perfect little um, encapsulation of the early church and the apostolic Dynamics, tradition's yeah. Yeah. Um, insecurity well, about you, her, you, her proximity to him. Yeah. Take Mary out of it. You see that precedent how Jesus shows up to the disciples differently after he is resurrected. After his yeah. resurrection, he shows up to them differently. And, yeah. and Peter is, you know, kind of broken by that experience. He's like, Peter, do you love me? He's like, what do you mean do I love you? Why are you asking mm-hmm. me this? Right? Peter, do you love me? And he's like, oh, but why are you asking me this? Peter, do you love me? He asked him three freaking times. <laughs> right? And he's yeah. just totally broken by this. Broken and like just, why are you having to ask me this question? And... And the re- you can see the dynamic of those relationships. I, mean, it's a, I yeah. think it's a beautiful passage because he's he's really he's really addressing and dealing with but right before you in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, "You're going to deny me three times before the cock crows," and he's like, "Well, I'm not going to deny you." Yeah. Right. And he's exactly what he does. So he's coming back to. I think that's why he asked him three times or every time that he denied him. And it's a really mm. beautiful exchange. But you can see the dynamic and the different relationships. And then, of course, doubting Thomas. And so yeah. I don't have a hard time with seeing those you're going to teach to the level of the consciousness of the person that you're talking to. Yeah. Well, what's fun, it's interesting you said Downing Thomas because Downing Thomas is in the John Gospel of John. <laughs> yeah, and that's true. Um, there's actually, there's, there's a nice little kind of piece from scholarship that the Johannine community mm-hmm. was in a dispute and conflict with the Thomasine community. This is their because they're the John folks were not thrilled with the Gospel of Thomas and his close proximity to Jesus. So in John's Gospel, Thomas is maligned. You know, so yeah, it's a very like Shakespearean Game of Thrones whole scene. You know, with the with with the the relationships. So you so just pivoting away from the Bible here. Yeah. So you. You spent some time in and around the church. So anyway, the Buddha... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Also good. Also good. So you spent some time in and around the church, but then you started looking for answers. And I think in in your... I think you said this in your book, um, that you started reading... Yeah, I read Living Buddha, Buddha, Living Christ by Thich Nhat Hanh, like like 14, 15, something. So you were super young. Yeah. And so... One of the things I love that you did in your book, and anybody who's, who's gotten this far and is still interested, go check out his book. Uh, I think it's Thanks, fantastic. Um, original Sin is a Lie. And I love the title. <laughs> there's, there's a couple of different... The original Sin is a big one for me. Yeah. Hell, which you address. Yeah. Right? Like, um, I think there's only two or three times in the New Testament in which... Hell is generally considered Hades, right? We know that from right. in Greek. And I think it's only mentioned two or three times... Uh, the other word is, is it go, Gehenna. Gehenna, yeah. Which is really like more like a trash heap or like a... Uh, landfill. Landfill, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
Which is interesting because there's this idea of hell is also a really big deal to Christians. Right. And you see this, especially in the last, I'd say the last 120 years when you start studying uh, church history, Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, yeah. this like drive to fear people into believing in God, right? And, mm, yeah. and you, you, to be fair, you see this earlier that with the Catholic Church, but where I want to weave into Eastern religion here. Yeah, sure. But I want to... One of the things to me that I think is so interesting, and these were answers that came to me later, one of them was reincarnation. Mm. When I was younger, which is super hilarious as I just begin to remember more about myself, but when I was younger, I really had this thing with like reincarnation could not be a thing. I have no idea how I thought that mm. or why I thought that because now I'm, I'm the exact opposite. It's like, how could it not be a thing? <laughs> like to me, it's so self-evident and obvious. And, yeah. and I think there's thousands of documented cases now if anybody's super interested on this topic just go look it's like yeah. you don't have six-year-old children speaking dead languages, languages or ancient yeah. languages out of nowhere or like recognizing you know uh, people on a boat that they were on and knowing everybody's name there's yeah. just there's too many documented cases but i'd love to hear your take first of all on reincarnation if you wouldn't mind your, your thoughts on that or how you look at that how you reconcile those pieces or what your thoughts on it and then kind of transition into like in your book, you did such a great job of showing, which is going to annoy the hell out of a lot of Christians, pun intended, um, how they're all kind of saying the same thing. Yeah, they really right? are. For a different audience, yeah. but the same thing. Because, man, when I start talking to people in the Christian community, I, you can literally see their skin begin to crawl. They're like, they're not the same thing. Like, yeah. Have you well, studied the book? No. At the, root but... of the, at the root of the traditions, you know, they're really... They're really beautiful. It's you know it's called the perennial philosophy, right? So yes. Aldous Huxley wrote this book, the famous uh, British novelist and uh, Brave New World. Yeah, genius kind of intellectual of the middle twentieth century, and um, yeah, the perennial philosophy. He basically, you know, religious scholarship compared to religion, saying, "Gosh, they all talk about love. <laughs> they all talk about silence. They all talk about um, you know compassion, forgiveness." All these beautiful things and um, when you study the world religious traditions and really the mystics you know kind of coming back to the mystics the exoteric and the esoteric right so the institution and then kind of the non-institutional religious or the, sometimes they're called the contemplatives um, typically monastics um, you know they sound very similar eerily similar um, there's a section too in the book that I talk about called the avatars where there, um, I compare specifically the teachings of Jesus, the Buddha, and Krishna. Um, and, you know, the, the Buddha even says almost word for word, what you reap is what you sow. Yep. Uh, right, that classic line from the New Testament. There, um, there's, a, there's a parable in the Lotus Sutra. I believe it's the Lotus Sutra or the Heart Sutra. It's one of those two um, that essentially has the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, you know, I mean, once you really look at these traditions, it's like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, in terms of reincarnation, um, it, the Hindus call it samsara, mm -hmm. the wheel of samsara. Like there's this the idea that, yeah, we're just kind of going around and around this kind of cosmic carousel. Um, you know, we were part of the one and then split off. Uh, the idea around kind of consciousness, the conscious split from creator and um, kind of coming back into oneness. We're all just we're all just on this big wheel, undoing our separateness. 
yes. uh, through, throughout and time. Undoing our separateness. Right? Yeah. So that's really, yeah, that's kind of the mystical worldview. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm into it. Although I will say, you know, you, you and I talked about this a little bit, I think, the other day about um, non-duality, mm-hmm. which is um, maybe maybe too much to get into tonight. I don't know. We could also do a part two. But um, non-duality is, is essentially just means not to. And a lot of the mystics have kind of non-dual components. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, even, even Jesus says, for example, if thine eye be single, your body will be full of light. You know, I think there's little moments in the religious traditions that the kind of lay people just have, they have no idea, idea what that means. Yeah. If thine eye be single, well, that means... Um, when you see one in everything, when yes, you see no separation, your body will be full of light. That's called enlightenment. That's the same thing as what you know these Eastern traditions are talking about. And also, just kind of full circle here with Thomas, we talked about the similarities. Well, uh, two-thirds are kind of in the other ones. What's the other third? What's in Thomas that's, that's not, not in me. Matthew yeah. and Luke? Yeah. Um, Pretty much everything that's not in Matthew and Luke that's in Thomas sounds like it should be in the Upanishads. <laughs> um, Jesus says, split a block of wood and I'm there. Pour out a bucket of water and I'm there. Oh, I mean, it's that's... almost this kind of pantheistic yeah. uh, belief, you know, and, and it's like, oh, that didn't make it well, in the Bible. Like chop, chop wood, the carry water. water has a very Buddhist energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, yeah, man, it's all the same. <laughs> how do you reconcile like, and maybe you don't but when you're talking to well I guess let, let's back up why did you write Original Sin is a Lie you talked about it you weren't recording but just so yeah I, I was really surprised and, and refreshed as hell to learn <laughs> that the Bible is not infallible yeah. And that really, I guess, kind of to come back to like the title of the book, um, you know, pretty much all of the issues with Christianity or all the things about Christianity that I had an issue with, like original sin, for example, was a later tradition. Yeah. And everything that I was really into, like love your enemies, um, that's more historically like closer, closer, to, closer, the, to, closer the source, to the source, you know? which is fascinating because... You don't really see that get a lot of attention, right? Love your enemies. <laughs> Love your enemy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really don't. Um, we're not spending a lot of time on that. We want to argue over the, the bullshit that is yeah. later. <laughs> Forgive them, Father, for they know no, not what, what they, they do. do. One of the most powerful just scenes. Lines in humanity. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I really liked, and, I, and, and it also kind of, again, to that earlier point around like, secular folks being like, oh, no, you know, a lot of my friends are creatives in Austin, Texas, and I work in tech, you know, and it's like people are kind of post, this is a post-religious world, right? And so... Post-modernism. Post-modernism, yeah, post-Christian America. So... In Western civilization. It's a real, um, it's a real joy for me to say, well, actually, you know, check this out. You know, well, so that's and basically I think part of that is, is because I think a lot of people want something to believe in, yeah, and have a framework to make sense of their life. I don't think 
we do very well as a species without meaning. Right? Like we're mm, dealing in, yeah. we're in the middle of an existential crisis, crisis yeah. in our society right now because without meaning, it's like you have mental health issues, you turn to sports, which I love, but just crazy things to like try to create meaning right, in your services. life. Yeah, whatever it is, right? Because we, we want to have meaning and without it, yeah. it like it, it, we get untethered. Yeah. And there is, a, there is a moment in time, I think, in the human experience where being untethered is incredibly important. But I think a lot of what we're seeing in our society right now is because we have this kind of nihilistic view of the world yes. that's becoming more culturally pervasive in the middle of an existential crisis. But when people try to turn to Christianity, it's like, man, this, there's just too much in it that is, doesn't fit. It doesn't like... It hurts more than helps. It kind of became this big, like dilapidated, like I the you know like the Charlie meme, on like the oh it's always sunny where he kind of like looks crazy and he's like drawing on the poster. That's kind of what like <laughs> modern Christianity is. Just like well that's we have to do this thing you know. It just became this um, this something way different and you know I think there's a lot of also at the same time you're having people kind of this this. Uh, renaissance of like Buddhism and like mindfulness, yeah. which has been really totally. profound and beautiful. And, and um, there's a great book called Why Buddhism is True um, by Robert Wright, uh, which is another edgy title, um, where he basically says a lot of kind of Buddhist uh, psychology is in line with behavioral psychology. 100%. And, and to a spooky degree. Um, you know, when, you, when, you, uh, when you're always clinging you know, what, what the Buddha says is um, life is suffering, but what, what he really means is the material world is the, the word is dukkha, not suffering. It means unsatisfactory, right? So it's like the material world is not going to satisfy you. Right. I can't get Your no attachment. satisfaction. You know, Mick Jagger and Jack, the Buddha, yeah. uh, right. And, <laughs> and it's like that's really like that people are understanding that. You know, they're saying, oh, wow, I can never... Uh, you know, I'll run out of money on the slots or I'll, you know, yep. this lover will leave me or, you know, whatever it is, or my parents will die or, you know, the material world doesn't have it. So what you do is you undo your expectation of the material world uh, yes. to undo the suffering. And, you Surrender know, expectation and find the answer in word. Exactly. That, that is the work. There's really practical, you know, advice from these uh, systems. When, I, when I'm... If I want to teach spirituality and spiritual technology, if I will, I'm more likely to go into Buddhist teaching yeah. if it doesn't just come from my own um, understanding. Christianity, I like from a value standpoint, perhaps a meaning standpoint, but certainly yeah. solid values, but doesn't do a whole lot to teach practical, practical. spirituality. Yeah. Buddhism is freaking fantastic at practical spirituality. Yeah. Uh, and so I think you're seeing that that rise again. It's like, wow, meditation really does work. It does change your life. And growing up in the church, my favorite part of church very often was prayer and worship and meditation because that was, to me, is when I was getting into the highest ecstatic states. Yeah. Right. And that's a, you can worship as a form of meditation. Prayer is certainly a form of meditation. Um, it's a, those are I've always enjoyed that. Right. And so it's like I it's I think what we're seeing is maybe I'm optimistic but a multidisciplinary <laughs> approach to the truth of what is, yeah. what has always been, and that deep remembering. And going way well off said. tangent here. No, well said. That's beautiful. Yeah, and you know, I, the, the last thing that I maybe will add to this in terms of kind of values from the East that I really appreciate, 
um, all right, they're called the yogas, right? The um, yana yoga, bhakti yoga, karma yoga. So yoga just means union. Yeah. It just means path of path of union with the divine, um, and kind of I guess maybe pointing out Buddhism and Christianity from this perspective of like, you know, in, in Hinduism, the idea of the yogas is this really varied look at different psychodynamic needs and psycho-emotional needs. So yana yoga, J-N-A-N-A, means um, kind of intellectual, mental pursuit. You know, mm-hmm. I think the Buddha was a yana, yana yogi, basically. Um, you know, yeah. you're, you're just undoing intellectually. You're saying, uh, Sri Ramana said, neti neti, I am that, I am that, or I'm not this, not this, that's neti neti, no, I'm not this, not this. Um, and it's just this kind of almost colder in an analytical process, right? But it's valid. We can valid say path to God. A left brain process, right? If they want exactly. To, or a mentalization or an analyzing of exactly. And There's then that's a... by subtraction, right? Not not this, not this is to figure out. And I use this as a practice in my coaching practice to yeah. help people figure out very often what they want or who they are. In many cases, it's easier to do Negate that by, right, by subtraction, yeah. right? I'm yeah. definitely not this. I'm not this. So then you do that enough, and it's like, well, what is left? Right. Right? Yeah. And that is the work. That's great. That's it's beautiful. Like, and, and the second kind of yoga is called bhakti yoga, uh, or a bhakta. And that's, um, that tends to be more Christian. It's kind of the prayer, uh, worship, devotion, song, dance, the Sufis in Islam, mm-hmm. you know, kind of. Uh, poetry and dance and music. Rumi, Rumi is, a, is a bhakti. Some people say Jesus was a bhakti. I think he was a little bit of both probably, but um, yeah. you know. He that, seemed to be able to meet different groups where they were, where at. They were so at. Whether whether he was that or not. He Maybe he might have just transcended the whole scene probably. Yeah, but, and just connected with where the people were. But yeah, so you have bhakti yoga and you know, and then karma yogi is means like service. So like feeding people, you know, which is in all traditions. Um, and then you have Raja Yoga, which is kind of this culmination. Maybe that's what Jesus was. But, um, you know, when the Bhaktis, for example, look at the Yanis, they say, oh, these guys are just so cold and, you know, intellectual and they need to sing a song. And the Yanis look at the Bhaktas and they go, God, they're just crazy dancing around. You know, what yep. the hell are they doing? And that's a really nice way of, you know, the West doesn't really have that framework. It's kind of all or nothing. Yep. In Christianity, in Islam, and Judaism, you kind of this is the way it is. You say these rules, and this is the thing. And um, the East has that kind of buffet line quality to it. In an acceptance, in yeah. acceptance. Because yeah. if you because if you if that's you look a at path. Ch- if you look at that's church history path. and you look at the different denominations, I would yeah. say what you just described shows up within the different denominations that's of true. Christianity. Yeah, though they're not all very accepting of one another. They, right, they certainly have those expressions. Right, more that are. More into in the Christian world, we'd call more into the gifts of the spirit. Others that are more right. like the Bereans, line upon line, precept upon precept. They're more about the written word and very intellectual. That's true, and, actually, and that's a great it, point. And I will say though, like my like counter to that would be, it's unfortunate that it's not on an individual level. It's on a community level. It becomes right. sectarian, yeah. as opposed to kind of us and themness, yep. as opposed to, oh, that's a great way to, oh, oh. You want to go up that way? Do that. You know, it's like no, no, no. We're a Methodist family, right? Like, or you're a Presbyterian. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say, I would say that that tends to be a human experience more than a religious experience, though. Where there's 
a tribalistic yeah a tribalistic yeah. view yeah. of like the world is the way I see it yeah right like this is the way it is yeah um, that's fair which is part of the, the human experience I think so I, I had uh, I had a really cool experience I thought um, I did five meo oh, okay uh, which is the strongest known hallucinogenic hallucinogenic um, wow. known, known to man currently I did not know that yeah it was it was a random Random. It's like DMT times ten. Ten? Yeah, it's like a. It's oh like my a, word! It's, it's its own thing. But it, I'll be quick here. But it was to create a frame. I thought it was really interesting. And so, like, I've done I've done shrooms a number of times. I love shrooms. It's fantastic. And for me, it's always feeling like I just go. Can you not time. tell I'm on them? No, I'm no. just kidding. <laughs> um, don't tell me. But um, for lack of better ways of putting it, I felt compelled led to have this experience i did it by myself not with uh, somebody who walked me through the experience but i just went and met this dude um pretty interesting and i drop in shrooms will take like 30 minutes 45 minutes when he's done you know you just kind of like kind of comes on nice and it's a gentle teacher right? 5meo is like you can't count down to 10. wow you're out like wow. you just in fact you breathe it in and then the guy that the exhale me, is tough. And as you exhale, you just, and I, wow. I left my body, just toof, gone. It was an awesome experience for me. Um, but so I'm, I'm hanging out in another realm. I don't know else to explain that. I'm, I mean, I'm like, <laughs> I, I saw my body as I left it. I'm like, whew, whew. And I'm hanging out with this dude who at the time I did not know. I know now I'm, I know, I know who he is. And we're just ha like we're friends and we're talking and we're connecting and I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. And I start to come back in and the, the guy, my guide who was sitting at the edge of this thing I was laying on, he goes, who are you talking to? And I go, I go, what's your name? And he goes, what do you mean my name? I'm Ram Das. Mm. And I, at the time I didn't know who Ram Das was. I hadn't studied any of his work. Wow. And uh, so I say, I go, I'm talking to Ram Das. The dude, this was a couple of years ago. Dude goes, wild. He goes, he's dead. <laughs> and I start, I start laughing. And then Ram Dass starts laughing. He goes, I'm not dead, you idiot. I just left my body. Wow. And so we start oh laughing God. at how funny we think it is that he doesn't get this. So I'm having this whole conversation. I'm going somewhere with this, I think. <laughs> so then, like, we're having this whole just exchange. And it wasn't really about anything deep. We were mostly just, like, deep belly laughter. Like, just the humor of life. It wasn't, like any profound conversation I can remember. But then this other dude showed up and it was interesting because I didn't know who he was either other than I knew who he was. I didn't know anything about him. But uh, when I was in Bali, I went to all the Hindu temples. I thought they were amazing and beautiful. I also felt this like familiarity with the place that was super interesting to me. Hmm. But one of the gods was Ganesh, who's hmm. a, an elephant god. Yeah. Right? And he shows up. Wow. And we're like rapping and I'm like, getting all these downloads. I thought it was so interesting, but we started talking about incarnation and instances of life. Um, and that was what, like, was super interesting to me that these two guys that I didn't really have much knowledge of at the time, I go hang out with, and it wasn't- In a completely like- Completely Embodied way. Yeah, almost. totally. And yeah. it was like, it was when I was with them, it was like I'd always known them, but it was a remembering for me in this lifetime which was super fascinating to me. Um, and, and the whole experience was like 40, 50 minutes, but it felt like 
yeah. five minutes. It felt so, so incredible. But I, I wanted to touch on this because I, the thing that I think I see coming up right now uh, is the use of psychedelics to yeah. get some of these experiences. Yeah. Which for me, I'm not opposed to, clearly. Um, but my concern is the same with all religion, religious activity, which is you find seekers in every group. Right. right? And, it's, and for me, I've always felt connected in this particular lifetime. I've always felt connected to God. I didn't have to find God in this lifetime. I didn't have, God, do you exist? Like that was, I dropped in with total awareness on that front. I had to understand human and I had to understand religion. <laughs> so I studied all the religions because I'm like, what do I do? How, would, how do you guys interface with God? Like that was bizarre to me. But I'm seeing so much work getting done with psychedelics. That's yeah. Like jumping. The Renaissance, people. if you will. You yeah. Know, yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's like people are like, getting clear on stuff super quick. So what's your opinion or thoughts on that? Or do you have any, any experiences of, um, or opinions around? Yeah, I have a chapter in, in the book about psychedelia and, um, I haven't gotten there yet. Big, yeah, it's probably the it's second half. Okay. So I, I talk about Ter Terry McKenna, who's a big, um, psycho yeah, Terrence, pioneer. Terrence, yeah. yeah, he's great. And, um, and Ram Das, and actually, um, Aldous Huxley who wrote perennial philosophy wrote, um, the doors of perception yep. from which the doors got their name. And, um, yeah, you know, I think it's a very powerful tool. Um, and I think that, do you see in Eastern religion, any use of a precedent for psychedelics? Are there yes. Any? Okay. Yeah. In fact, a buddy of mine sent me a new buddy sent me his book called the psychedelic origin of religion. And he talks about, you know, he basically kind of, hypothesizes or theorizes certain rituals that were very likely psychedelic uh, chemicals and things like that. There's one called Soma in ancient oh, Vedic, yeah, for sure. which we don't know what it was, but we kind of have an idea. And so by description, you get the idea. That that get the idea, you know? Yeah. It's like when I went to Bonnaroo in 2008, uh, no, um, <laughs> I, uh, I really, I'm pro psychedelics. I, it's always, it's also very important to call out set and setting um, oh, to sure. me. And I think the West, um, we Sucks at do that. it at a party, which <laughs> yeah, is terrible, right. and a music festival, which is pretty bad. Yeah. Um, doing it around a campfire is probably the best. Oh, or in your room it. by yeah. yourself yeah. and not leaving um, yeah. is key. Yeah. But also, you know, it's not the end all be all. And I think that there's, 100%. People are realizing that that it's a it's a glimpse, um, you know. And Ram Dass's own life, to bring it back to your spirit Boy, guide. As he got older, he got he, he references that right. Yeah, in his later years, he said I, it wasn't about when I would get high, I would always come down. Yeah, he said it's not about getting high; it's about getting free. Yeah, oh, great. Yeah, that was in. I forget which one is grist for the mill. I think days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and. What happened was, too, he met this guru, Neem Karoli Baba. I write about these guys in the book. I got their permission. Thanks, Hanuman Foundation. Um, Neem Karoli Baba was this very kind of, he was like a miracle Baba. He didn't really have teachings. Some Hindu gurus like write books like Yogananda and things like that. Um, Neem Karoli Baba kind of just lived his life. He kind of, he would do miraculous himself. people and yeah. he generated compassion and things like that, fed people. Um, but he didn't really have like teachings. Anyway, um, the story, I won't spoil it. The story of how Ram Dass met Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba is amazing. And, um, it's, it's, uh, it's worth really, um, a 
appreciating and getting to know um, in kind of the spiritual pantheon. But what happened was Ramdas, after they met a few days later, he had some LSD on him. And one of the reasons he was traveling the world was to try to find out if anybody knew in the spiritual world about LSD or about psychedelics um, because, you know, they had become obsessed with it at Harvard and that's oh, yeah. why he got thrown out. You Richard know, Alpert. Richard yeah. Alpert and, yeah. and Timothy Leary and the, yeah. uh, the, those guys. And um, Neem Karoli Baba, unprompted, asked Ram Dass, pre-Ram Dass, as Richard Alpert, he said, yeah. give me the medicine. And he said, what? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, give me the medicine. His traveling companion said, he probably means the acid, man. And he goes, oh, shoot, okay. And so he pulls out, you know, I think it was called like white lightning or something. It was sure. like a pretty strong batch. And he gives him one tab, which was a nice amount. And he says, keep it, come on. And this is an old Indian man, you know, who's probably never done it before, right? Um, two, which would be 600 milligrams, micrograms? I don't, I'm not sure. I think it was micrograms. 600, three, 900, four, 1,200, which wow. I think it was around like 150. It You're would be enough it. to, yeah, so 1,200. Um, he watches him swallow all four, and he's kind of shocked at this. And, but he said the scientist in him was like, okay, you know, this is <laughs> going to be good to see what happens. And, uh, you know, the story goes famously that nothing happened. You know, um, he just kind of smiled. And I think he would kind of, he, he went through the rest of the day normally, but he would kind of like do like a crazy face and like freak him out, but then just be totally fine. And, um, you know, there's actually a, po a prologue to this. So... When he came back and wrote Be Here Now, he told that story so much, and people kind of doubted it, you know, oh yeah, not, nothing happened to this guy, you sure? And then he began to doubt it, and there's another book called Miracle of Love, A Thousand Stories About Neem Karoli Baba, and it, it's, it's good, it's worth, thing, you know, thumbing through. And um, in that book, he talks about how he went, when, one of the times we went back, he did it again, mm. because he... He knew, you know, Maharaji felt the doubt yeah. in the original thing. And he, and he said, you know, let's really be sure. And like some other guy came up and there was a watch and they did it again. And I think it was even more the second time. And again, nothing happened. And, you know, basically what he says is when you're in Detroit, you don't have to take a bus to Detroit. Yeah. You know, he... Yeah. Maharaji, these beings are operating up here. You yeah. know, we're here. Yeah, yeah. And, so and acid is here. You yeah. know, it's like those are here. Back yeah. to the Hawkins thing. You know, there's all these levels. So, so if your consciousness is here, you're not going to feel anything from that. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think I, I, I like to tell that story because, to your point, you know, we are in this like psychedelic spiritual renaissance. I know so many people that are like going to Costa Rica to drink the Aya, you know, and that's really cool mostly i think it's really interesting and, and i hope that on like a political level and kind of a late stage cap level I, I i hope that folks do it fairly because there's like this history of colonial bullshit and indigenous people that get taken advantage of by yep. you know opportunists and you know that's frustrating obviously but it seems like it's mostly good the fact that this is becoming Agreed. more Agreed. and there seems to be more conscious awareness to protect 
it seems like it, it. Seems hopefully like it. Yeah. you know maybe yeah. we're echo chamber a little bit but yeah. but but i but so i'm mostly excited about it all and also at the same time you know it's just a glimpse it's just it, a tool and it's, it's another path it's a, another tool yeah. I, I look at it like like the book of the lord right yeah. medicine is just another way but yeah. if it doesn't get you to know god right and to remember then to me it's just as useless as any other tool and right. And, and, and the seeker community gets into things for the sake of the experience, not the understanding. Right. But you see that, there's nowhere to judge, you see that in everything, as far as I can tell. All religions have that community, right? So yeah. it's like, they're not really interested in the learning, they're interested in the experience. So. Here, here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been epic. I've really enjoyed this <laughs> conversation, my friend. Yeah, brother. We'll have to do uh, round two at some point. Yeah, that'd be great. There's, there's a lot we could have gotten into. Um, but just so people can find you, where's the best place to find you? Um, probably OriginalSinIsAlie.com is like the site that kind of holds everything. I'm OriginalSinIsAlie on um, TikTok and Instagram are kind of my main two. And for, for Christians listening to this, I would say pay attention if you're triggered by what anything we've talked about. Yeah. And as I always say, call upon the Holy Spirit yeah. right, using Christian language to guide you into understanding. He promises he will in Second John. And go get the book. At least you'll become more educated. Even if it's more educated on things that you don't agree with, go read things that will challenge you. You'll learn a lot about yourself. And I thought you did a fantastic job. I'm halfway through it. But what I've read so far, I've really enjoyed how you put it together and showed in a way that hopefully creates a, multi, a multidisciplinary approach to the truth, which is God, right? Which is, uh, I would say, the isness. Uh, mm. And so I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you being on today, brother. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate yeah. it. And oh. yeah, the water is just fine. Yeah. Come on in, guys. <laughs> the water is just fine. <laughs> Cheers.